Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 132 of the Brown County Hour. This is Dave Seastrom. And Sarah Lytle, along with the rest of the crew. This month, we're continuing our musical combination with Reuben Guthrie and Albert Nolting. Last month, we featured three songs that both of them played on, and this month, we're featuring two solo pieces with Albert and one where they both play. We have another Sarah Lytle essay in the latest edition of her series, Coming to Your Senses. This one is called Tasteful Living. We also have her interview with Chuck Wills and Tony Brewer about sound effects. Jim Eagleman and Dave Seastrom share their essays, and we've pulled a couple of pieces from our archives, a poem from Carol Marks, and we'll hear Katie Kogler talk about spiders. The show begins with the interview I did with Albert Nolting. Albert is a classically trained guitar player who lives in neighboring Columbus and sometimes partners with Reuben Guthrie, who was featured in last month's show. Sarah Lytle shares her essay called Tasteful Living and will close with Albert's rendition of Largo in D Minor by Antonio Vivaldi. This is Rick Fedick, and we have an exciting evening here at our Brown County Hour studio. Uh, we're fortunate enough we have two musicians tonight. They each have their own solo career, and plus they team up together. So you're going to get to enjoy this. So here we go. Albert Nolting. Hi. Good to have you here. Thank you. <laughs> great to be here. Yeah, that was great uh, work you did on that guitar. For you folks out there, he had all 10 digits moving at the same time. <laughs> so tell us uh, when you started and you said you had you were a bona fide musician, that you had two expensive pieces of paper to prove that. So right. <laughs> you know, just tell us a little bit about what, what about your life and how, what sure. you're up to. So I started... Uh, taking just private guitar lessons about 12 years old, 12, 13, um, and at Tom Pickett's actually. It took from a guy named Kimball uh, who ended up opening Guitar City now in town, um, and I absolutely loved the guitar lessons. I was obsessed with it. Um, I loved Kimball. I, I remember that very vividly. And um, so at the same time, though, I, was, I played a lot of sports, basketball, baseball, so I was very involved with that. So... Um, I think looking back a little, my guitar playing got in the way of basketball and baseball. So uh, I kind of quit taking lessons. Uh, oh, no. 
unfortunately. Um, Wrong choice. <laughs> but I kept playing through high school and stuff. Um, and um, just, you know, I fell in love with the guitar and for so many reasons, like so many people do, of course. Um, and, um, yeah, I played in bands, electric guitar, rock music, played in a band with my brother, um, played in a couple other bands in high school. And, um you know, I kind of came to the conclusion this is something I'm really serious about and something I actually really want to do this to try to make an actual living. Uh, <clears throat> so you must have so, learned quite a bit mm-hmm. early in your early career, you know, yeah, studies. Yeah, yeah. And I started – so um, I remember about my sophomore, junior year of high school, I got very serious. I started taking uh, AP Music Theory in, in high school as well, and um, I started taking private piano lessons again with uh, Dr. Stephen Reen, who passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago. And um, and then I started actually driving over to Bloomington to start taking classical guitar lessons again with a, um, a doctorate student who's now the director of admissions of the Jacob School of Music. And, um, and so I just got really serious about it, very focused. Honestly, in high school, I, I really slacked off a lot in general, um, but... A lot of distractions. A lot of distractions, <laughs> yes. A lot of girlfriends, a lot of fun stuff I did. Uh, but yeah, I started taking private lessons over there. I remember driving every week over to Bloomington and uh, just kind of getting obsessed with this classical guitar thing. Um, I was really fascinated um, with the instrument and just the versatility of it and just it, you know, just how it sounded, just almost like a mini orchestra, essentially. Um, and so... I knew if I studied it, it would really increase my skills and my knowledge of music. And But yeah, I eventually decided, you know, I stayed home a year, I went to college at home, transferred then to, I had to, you have to audition, of course. Um, so I did audition into the Jacobs School of Music just to get into the school, of course. And I did get in. Um, and uh, that was an awesome moment. And so then I transferred my sophomore year to Bloomington. And was over there for four and a half years. Um, getting, I ended up getting two degrees, um, and um, I wanted essentially in the beginning I was a music education major. I wanted to be a, I thought I wanted to be a classroom music teacher, um, general elementary, but that kind of did not work out. And so I also began teaching private lessons as well in my senior year of high school. So I've always been teaching even before I went to college to really study it. So um, I graduated, though, in 2008 uh, with two degrees in music education and guitar. And, um, you know, after that, I worked a couple horrible jobs to pay off my student loan debt, which was absolute misery. Um, (laughs) But at the same time, I was growing my teaching business where I had maybe 10, 15 students. And um, I probably did 20, 30 events when I graduated, after I graduated, um, doing weddings, events, dinners, things like that, you know, and, um, but I eventually quit my day job. I paid off all my student loans, which was awesome. And, um, so basically I have a, I have a very, at the moment, a very strong teaching business. So I teach about close to 50 students right now, uh, weekly. Um, so I have music, your 
main income? Main, absolutely. Music is my main income. Income teaching. mainly teaching. Yeah, mainly teaching. Although I love to perform, I love to gig. Honestly, I really do. Well, um, I said something to your dad one time, and yep. he he was talking about doing weddings and yes. different different kind of functions like that. Yes. They're a little more um, highbrow, shall we say? Um, and, yeah, right. Than a, you know, gig for sure, at a local club or something. Yeah. So with the classical guitar, you know, it seemed it appealed more to like, yeah, I've done maybe a hundred weddings or so over the last 10, 15 years, kind of all over Indiana. But now I'm I'm kind of just trying to branch out, meet people. I'm I um, you know, I've always been sort of alone in this whole business. I don't, you know, being freelance, self-employed, um, I'm not really in a band. Um it's always been solo for me, so I'm, I'm trying to reach out. I saw Ruben's gigging a lot, um, and I was he, I'm grateful he reached out to me, and so yeah. now we're work, doing some stuff. So, yeah. yeah, well, I think when I met you, you were at the mm-hmm. Brown County Inn open mic night with one of your students. I think was the first, and you you were there yeah. a couple times, and then yeah. um, you and Ruben played together in Columbus. Yes. So <clears throat> sounds great. Um, and you did a great job, you know, always have every time I've heard you. So is there a way people can get a hold of you? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm on, obviously I'm on Facebook. Um, I know it's kind of Instagram, TikTok. The, most of my students are on TikTok now and Instagram. I'm, you know, I'm becoming a dinosaur, I guess, because I'm teaching young <laughs> kids. Uh, and uh, yeah, for private lessons, I teach guitar, electric guitar, rock guitar, acoustic guitar, classical guitar. Um, I've even done jazz guitar. Um, and I'm teaching piano now as well. So I studied secondary piano at IU because all music majors have to study piano uh, regardless of what your main instrument is. So at the time, I did not like that. But now coming out of it, it's become you know, a huge um, positive where I can teach beginning to intermediate piano to children. And um, it's a great instrument to start with. I teach a lot. I teach seven days a week currently. So um, but again, I love to gig. I can't say it enough. I'm just kind of I've gone through the stages of gigging. I found it to be a little more difficult um, to get people to pay you to play music. Um, But I'm trying to get into that space again. (laughs) I really am because it's such a drug. It's such a high to get someone to pay you to play the guitar. Sure. Glad that you came in tonight. And um, we appreciate everything and you you've done well and um, we wish you luck thanks so much yeah greetings this is part 4 of coming to our senses tasteful living. Of all the senses, taste is the one most closely associated with fine discrimination and style. To have good taste, whether in food, art, music, architecture, gardening, you name it, is to have an aesthetic appreciation, a sweetness, a richness for life. And so we have professional critics whom we trust to taste and review such things for us, believing their perceptions to be more educated or refined than ours. For to have a bad taste is to be base, vulgar, maybe even obscene. We refer to children and friends and lovers as sweet, the sweetness that they bring to our lives, and conversely, we speak of the bitter enemy, 
the bitter end, or something gone wrong as the bitter pill to swallow. And many of our early remedies were bitter tonics. A spoonful of honey helps the medicine go down. Throughout history, taste has had double meanings. From Latin, texer, to touch sharply. And so to taste was a trial or a test. Royalty had official tasters to test for poisoning or spoiled food. And in Middle English, tasten was to examine by touch, to test or sample, to give a small portion, just a little taste, a little touch. In Old French, taster was to sample by mouth, to enjoy. At the tip of the tongue, we taste sweet, bitter at the back, sour on the sides, and salty all over, but mostly at the front. A cube of sugar under the tongue won't taste as sweet as one on top. Bitter lies at the back as a final defense against danger that can make us gag or poison us. The major tastes are sweet, salty, sour, and bitter. Umami is a Japanese word to describe the taste of savoriness, as in broths or cooked meat. In India, pungent and astringent are important tastes that help ignite digestive fires, and a balanced meal will include all six tastes. The Greeks have qualities of rough and harsh, or oily and greasy, and sometimes an occasional whiny. Taste buds are found on the soft palate, tonsils, upper esophagus, and the epiglottis. On average, the human tongue has 2,000 to 8,000 taste buds, and they wear out every week to 10 days. We replace them, but over the age of 45, our palates become jaded. It takes more intense taste to produce the same sensation, which may be why you see people shaking a lot more salt on their foods. How food tastes in our mouth is experienced directly through our perceptions. The sight and the smell of food influences our experience of it. My mother made her own sauerkraut, and it stunk up the whole house. I couldn't be around it and went knocking on neighbors' doors to sit down to supper at their house. I've never tasted it. I never will. You, however, may find it delectable. Taste is very personal and cultural. Another food I've turned my nose to was stinky fish. In Korea, I was encouraged to try this fish that has been buried with spices and herbs and left to ferment. Supposedly, you will live long and healthy by eating it. I told my host that I choose to die younger and happy without stinky fish. Another fish tale is from the ancient Greeks and Romans who were so sophisticated about fish they could tell by tasting what water it came from. What food makes you happy? What do you crave to eat? Do you eat to live or live to eat? Hopefully, a good balance of both. Do you control your cravings, or do they control you? Cravings can be comfort food, but be careful. Quantity destroys quality. Have you ever eaten something so fast you didn't even taste it? Take time to do more than chew and swallow. I taught my kids we have no teeth in our stomachs. We don't chew cud like cows. Digestion begins with the smell and the sight of food. Savor it. Let it linger. Massage it with your tongue. Chew it slowly and let the flavors blossom. 
I learned the art of chewing well when I ran the food co-op and discovered organic foods and learning to eat local seasonal produce. Eating for health and for good living. Spring is approaching and the blossoming of mushrooms in the woods is making my mouth water. Dandelions and bitter greens help cleanse the system from the heavy winter and they'll be popping up. Farmers markets will be opening. You'll be starting your gardens. Celebrate the sweetness of spring and live a tasteful life. This is Sarah Lytle, an aspiring aesthetic with the Brown County Hour and WFHB. I'm Albert Nolting, and I will be playing Largo in D major by Antonio Vivaldi.
Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Support for WFHB comes from Our Brown County, a magazine for locals and visitors featuring art, entertainment, and county characters since 1995. Printed six times a year and available online. More at OurBrownCounty.com. Segment two begins with Sarah Lytle's interview with Chuck Wills and Tony Brewer about sound effects. Jim Eagleman shares his essay called The Land Ethic, and we'll end with Albert Nolting's performance of the prelude in E minor by Hector Villalobos. Hi, this is Sarah Lytle working outside the studio today. I'm at the Playhouse with Tony Brewer and Chuck Wills, the sound effects crew, and we're in their office, so to speak. In about an hour, the Maltese Falcon radio play will begin, and these guys are going to pull out the tricks and work their magic. So, tell us about the effects you'll be using tonight and who does what. Chuck, what do you do? Sure. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having us. Uh, I do electronic effects, so everything that I have is pre-recorded, and it can be what's called underscores, which is music that goes behind the cast dialogue, uh, along with different electronic sound effects. And, uh, for instance, you might hear the intro fanfare. And that's all done from my iPad on patches of music that I have pre-recorded. Okay, so I, I was wondering about that. Do you go to a, like a wiki site or where do you get this stuff you pull off the internet? I scavenge the farthest reaches of the internet to find something appropriate and when there isn't something appropriate, I mash it together out of bits and pieces. It's all part of being an audio engineer. Ah, it's all part of, you know, putting it in the soup, right? <laughs> exactly. But I think what Tony does is really much more uh, visually and auditorily interesting than, than the stuff I've got. So let's talk to Tony. Yeah, because this is old school stuff. It's like I see doors, I see a hammer, I see a gun, I see a gong, I see some things I don't know what they do. So Tony, tell us about that. Sure. <clears throat> so uh, thanks for having me. I'm a live sound effects artist, sometimes called a Foley artist. Foley is the, typically Foley is the film term. You see that at the end of film credits, way down at the bottom. Foley recorder, um, Foley artist. That's the person that's watching the film on a screen in a studio, and then they're matching like footsteps, uh, matching um, things that you see that weren't recorded during a scene for a film. Uh, Foley artists will get together with, uh, with the filmmakers and perform it for the soundtrack. Live sound effects is the preferred radio term, but Foley's actually become a more common term, which is great because I don't have to explain who Jack Foley was to people anymore. Uh, this is a really simple play because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a noir detective story. So it's, it's mostly footsteps. That's just me. That's me with one foot doing footsteps. Um, I've got my, my big sound effects door. 
And because it's Dashiell Hammett, there's lots of mixing of drinks. Oh, here comes the whiskey. There's the uh, telephone. Yeah, it's, a, it's an old dial phone. Let's see, this is a doorbell. But <laughs> Just we also like use the savages for, next door. That's our two-minute warning for when we go on stage. Mm -hmm. And because it's a bang bang shoot 'em up whodunit, there's also my my replica 1911. Uh, Colt 45. That's very heavy and feels and looks just like a real gun, but it's actually fires blanks. And and what's this over here with these boxes? So this thing that looks like a big speaker. Um, a friend of mine built this for me based on another Foley artist friend of mine had one. <clears throat> and this is a thing that you can break glass safely on stage. Oh. So it stands about three and a half feet high. It kind of looks like a speaker. It's got mesh on the outside, on the inside, it's oh, got several layers. There of, are shards of glass. Yeah, there. there's several layers of window screen covering the side, so it's open, mm -hmm. but it's also enclosed, so the glass doesn't go flying. And then I've got a little piece of pane of glass that you put in the top. The lid kind of flips open, and then it's got a little spike uh, in the lid, and you you can Net. hear that kind of yeah. lid kind of the, the spike kind of sits on it when it comes to the right moment. That's the oh, magic. Yeah. Yes, that the magic. is the magic. It was perfect. That's the intended reaction, by That's, the way. Yeah, That's yeah. what they're looking for. And of course, the Maltese Falcon. Oh, yes. It's all wrapped up, though. It's in its. It's in its. We can't you know, let that yeah, out we yet. Can't see it yet. Can't let that out up. yet. Yeah. It'll spoil things. And I see a switchboard here that says "Scream, Boo, <laughs> Applause on Air." So this was, you know, because we're doing this live in front of an audience. Um, and it's in a theater, it's good to have uh, some visuals. So people are gonna be in costume, we do some things with lighting. And we also have a, a, big, um, a big light board. And I think we're only using the on-air and the applause, but there's also a scream switch, which we've used for some horror things. And mm -hmm. boo, whenever Like I villain, just now did. Whenever the villain shows, yeah, yeah. You didn't even so, have to yeah, flip the they, switch. Yeah. I just screamed when that glass broke. <laughs> so I cue the audience uh, at different points too. Yeah, you mentioned that this was an especially fun production for you to do, and is it because it is the noir style? It is, yeah. I mean, um, it's a, it's such a it's such a pure movie. It's I think it's I think it's considered one of the first film noirs. Uh -huh. You know, things like Double Indemnity, and this is kind of the granddaddy. This is you know the first of its kind, and it's got you know the film anyway has Humphrey Bogart. Uh, Rich Fish is going to do a great Humphrey Bogart. He has a pretty pretty good Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of firsts, um, the first recorded sound was Big Ben in about 1890. So what was your first recorded sound How did, when you first oh, got wow. started? When I first, I first started doing this back in the early 90s, um, actually working with Rich Fish on a thing called Hayward Sanitarium, which was a, a horror thriller, uh, was actually a studio production. and. But we, we recorded a lot of stuff on location, too. We actually used a stereo microphone, kind of like a movie camera, yeah. and recorded you know, people out in actual settings, and, and then we'd come in and sweeten things in the studio. Uh -huh. But the thing I remember the most was we did the voice of a possessed evil tree. A spirit had possessed <laughs> ah. an evil tree and was haunting this young boy during a storm. And so the way we did it was I used a vocoder 
you know, one of those old Wawa things like oh, Peter right. Frampton did, mm-hmm. you know. In the studio, we recorded branches beating against a window. So like this tree okay. was beating against a window during a storm. And whenever the branch would hit, I would mouth the child's name, which was Jamie. So you would hear this tree scraping the window, but it would sound like the name Jamie. It was me whispering his name, but it was coming out as a scrape across a window pane. What a good way to start. I I can see how that got you hooked in. So Chuck, I'd like to just ask you, how did you get started with sound? Well, going way back to the 1980s, uh, I got into multi-track recording back with cassette tapes. Mm-hmm. And um, then uh, after school, kind of uh, gravitated away from that. And then when I joined the Brown County Hour, uh, it all came rushing back. And so for about the past uh, seven or eight years, mm-hmm. I, I've really been focused on different aspects of audio engineering. And when the pandemic hit yeah. and we started doing radio plays out of necessity, uh, they asked me if I could do uh, some of the music direction and underscores, and I'm like, yeah, I, that sounds like fun, and it's just taken off from there. So to, to be able to come up with a composite sound um, that fits the script is pretty exciting. So you guys doing this and, and bringing out good sound engages the audience, it sets the mood. I, I just really think it's going to be a fantastic production. And I wish we were airing this before it was happening, but this is after the fact. So those of you out there who haven't seen it, gosh, keep your ear to the stone and and find out when we're doing radio plays at the Playhouse again. Stay tuned. You never know what will happen in the fall. You never know what will happen. I want to thank you guys both. I'm really looking forward to it. I'll try to hold my screams. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Bye-bye. There are some that can live without wild things and some who cannot. These essays are the delights and dilemmas of one who cannot. These words, printed in a book entitled A Sand County Almanac, was written by scientist and biologist Aldo Leopold. It has occupied a prominent place in my library for years. First introduced to it as a student in the 1970s, my professors knew the study of natural resources was more than just a discipline To learn technical forestry and wildlife science was also a human endeavor. How to work for the land and the people who inhabit it. We were to look for qualities any good manager should possess, not just those needed for wildlife or forest work. Good habits of a human resource manager, understanding how people act, how people live and work together, would also work for a natural resources manager. This was a directive. Psychology and sociology classes were assigned Outside the School of Natural Resources, we enrolled and began to see how the human animal functions in its ecosystem. Leopold graduated from the Yale School of Forestry in 1909. He was hired first as an assistant forester for the U.S. Forest Service. And it was in this capacity he witnessed how Western lands were utilized and impacted by livestock allowed to graze on federal lands. By 1922, he submitted a formal proposal for the Gia Natural Forest to be a wilderness area. Leopold saw conservation working only when applied with a deep sense of awareness. As we depend on nature for all living, necessary things like food, water, wood, oxygen, it requires a close monitor of lifestyles to live compatibly with the natural world. Like winds and sunsets, he said, wild things were taken for granted 
until progress began to do away with them, now we face the question whether a still higher standard of living is worth its cost in things natural, wild, and free. For us in the minority, he says, the opportunity to see geese is more important than television, and the chance to find a pasque flower in bloom is a right as inalienable as free speech. During his time, geese overhead and a pasque flower, which is one of the first perennials to bloom in a Wisconsin spring, they were still uncommon. Now, of course, we see geese everywhere in the Midwest. But the pasque flower may be one to add to our search list. Both occupy a place in the ecosystem. And though important in their own capacity, he mused, what merits to mankind might they possess? Leopold's appeal to all citizens meant being direct enough to speak of pending doom. He speaks with caution, aware of consequences. Resource exploitation and habitat destruction were already pressing issues. Sand County Almanac was written in 1947. Leopold, now a chair of the new game management department at the University of Wisconsin, became disillusioned with man's regard to the natural world. Conservation, he said, is getting nowhere because it's incompatible with our concept of the land. We abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. Leopold includes the human emotion of love. Can we love and respect the land the way we love and respect our spouse or our children? If I borrow something from the land like I borrow something from a neighbor, ethically, I'm required to return it. Can I do this with the land? Maybe not. To borrow something implies it's returned, unmolested and unchanged. But development of land, it means it will never be returned to its original state. In Brown County, we are obliged to decide what land requires while meeting public need. How to encourage mankind's thoughtful existence with the earth, an ideal of ecologic consciousness evolved, he called it the land ethic, reflecting a conviction of an individual's responsibility for the health of the land. Health is the capacity of the land for self-renewal, he said, and conservation is our effort to understand and preserve this capacity. I've often wondered if my professors knew what impact Leopold had. Understanding man's existence with the natural world was an important lesson. I'm sure they saw us as young and impressionable, and we were excited and anxious to get hired in some capacity of natural resources work, and we were to be guided by Leopold's words. What we gained from informal class lectures and labs was reinforced by our time afield and in the woods, but as any resource manager knows, it's the people they work for and with that will determine how we live on the land. Nature ramblings for WFHB, the Brown County Hour, and I'm Jim Eagleman. My name is Albert Nolting, and I will be playing Prelude in E Minor by Hayiter Villalobos.
now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. Support for the Brown County Hour comes from listeners like you and the support of the Brown County Inn, a family-friendly getaway destination located in Nashville, Indiana, offering locally sourced food, drinks, and live entertainment with banquet space, indoor-outdoor pool, miniature golf, and more. Information and booking available at browncountyinn.com. We begin our final segment with two of our favorite pieces from the archives, a Carol Marx poem titled, I'm Not Writing Poems for a Year, and Katie Kogler's delightful piece about spiders. Dave Seastrom has been thinking about technology and making things by hand, and we'll close the show with Reuben Guthrie and Albert Nolting performing the James Taylor piece, Something in the Way She Moves. This is Carol Marks, and this poem is called On Not Writing Poems for a Year. I don't know why the self-amused spirit that sends poetry through me has been asleep or has been camping out on Browning Mountain or has gone to France for half a year or more, leaving me here, leaving me to my own devices, some of which, as devices go, are not working all that well. And it's going to take more than WD-40 and duct tape to fix them. My muse, if I have one, which at the moment I doubt, might be leaning up against a tall glass doorway at the Art Institute of Chicago, filing her nails and cracking her chewing gum. She is on the lam, maybe because I accused her once of being petty and affected and trite. She's collecting unemployment, but waiting for me to call. She'd much rather work than stand around. I should call her. We could write poetry, the cathartic kind that helps you process loss and grief and anger and despair. I could use the help. It takes a lot of energy to set it up, sort out some metaphors that aren't too mixed, compare the morning to something shiny that no one has mentioned yet, turn over some rocks to see what is there, hoping it's inspiration, like a long-lost ruby or a golden key and not something pale and slimy with eyes too big for its face. Hi, I'm Katie Kogler from Brown County State Park. What if you could make a material that is lightweight and flexible and stronger than a piece of steel the same size, just using your own body? Spiders can perform this feat by making silk with spinnerets. This is an example of one of the amazing things about spider anatomy. After you get past the fear factor, They have neat aspects about their legs, eyes, and jaws. With the weather being so chilly, we look indoors for things to do, and the spider's presence indoors presents us with a rare opportunity to study wildlife during the winter. Just to get you more in the mood for spider hunting, though, let's clear up some myths. First, you do not consume four to five spiders in your sleep per year. The factors needed to accidentally consume consume a spider are too numerous. Myth two, the harvestmen, or daddy longlegs, which have very long legs, are actually not spiders. There is a myth going around right now that they are the most venomous spider, but that their jaws are too small to pierce human skin. That's not true. They do not actually have venom. 
because they're not spiders, and they're mostly scavengers, not hunters. Myth number three, well, I mentioned looking at spiders indoors. They might be prevalent right now, but they aren't coming in from the cold. They are probably house spiders, and the ones running around in your bathtub right now are probably males searching for mates. Since these spiders spend most of their life indoors, don't put them out in the cold. Every spider can make silk. They make silk from projections on the underside of their abdomen called spinnerets. Glands inside the spinnerets make a liquid, and when it flows out of the spinnerets and touches the air, the liquid hardens and spider silk forms. The spider then guides the silk with its spinnerets or its legs to make different types of webbing. Spider legs come in all shapes and sizes. Some spiders, such as wolf spiders and funnel web spiders, have short muscular tapering legs that can help them move quickly to catch prey. I think jumping spiders are really neat spiders because of their short legs that can jump really far from plant to plant, even to your hand. But don't worry, they're just moving along. Spiders will have four, six, or eight eyes, usually eight. Also, some spiders, such as cave spiders that live in the dark all the time, have no eyes. Sometimes you can identify spiders by the number or position of their eyes. One example is the brown recluse, one of the two dangerous spiders you need to watch out for in Indiana. They have six eyes and three pairs on their head, so that it kind of looks like they have three eyes. The other dangerous spider in Indiana is the black widow, but they are obviously shiny black with a bulbous abdomen that has a red marking. As for the way spiders eat, they use their jaws, and part of their jaws are their palps, which act as feelers for the spiders and also to help them eat. Palps are fun because they're a way to tell the difference between boy spiders and girl spiders. I bet you always wondered that whenever you saw a spider. The boys have bulbous palps on the ends and the girls have skinny palps. Now that we've talked about spider silk, legs and palps, and the venomous ones too, we know a lot about spiders, at least a lot more than others do. There are many more interesting facts about spiders you can learn from kids.nationalgeographic.com and your local library. I'm a big fan of libraries. Also, a great place to study spiders is right around your own home. With more watching and learning about spiders, you might find they are much more fascinating than scary. This has been Katie Kogler from Brown County State Park. From the early days of settlement, and long before when this land was occupied by Native Americans, every single object that was in daily use was made by hand. Brown County has a long tradition of make-do craftsmanship. Bohol oak rod baskets and old Alex Mullis splitting white oak roofing shakes with a fro are two examples that come to mind. We know about these craftsmen because Frank Hohenberger memorialized them in photographs, and the surviving Bohol baskets continue to be cherished collectibles. When I moved here in the mid-70s, there was, and still is, an active craftsperson community. This goes hand-in-hand with the painters who found their way here for the same reasons. The beauty and remoteness, combined with thousands of acres of regenerating forest land, speaks to those who want to make their own lives. And working with your hands is central to this idea. As an early member of the Brown County Craft Guild and Gallery, I had the good fortune to be inspired by some very creative people who were looking for a way to make a living by working with their hands. 
Many of us also share the desire to build our own houses, and there are at least five examples of owner-built homes on possum trot alone. Throughout the county, there are dozens, if not a hundred or more examples that can be found. Handmade goods are still very much a part of life in Brown County, and there are several examples of thriving businesses that make everything from homes to garments. There are weavers, potters, leather workers, stained glass makers, jewelers, timber framers, luthiers, and wood carvers, just to name a few. This list also includes sculptors and graphic artists of every stripe, all of whom ply their trades by working with their hands. In today's world, we have created a new approach to making the objects we interact with. It's called CAD-CNC, or Computer-Aided Design and Manufacturing. Long ago and far away, I spent some time as a dental tech. My job was hand-carving wax models of teeth that were fitted into an articulated plaster mold of the patient's mouth. The mold was created by taking an impression with a two-part elastic polymer product called Permalast that, with a high degree of accuracy, duplicated the prepared tooth. The plaster mold was mounted to a device that mimics the motion of the lower jaw or mandible, making it possible to replicate the chewing pattern of an individual patient to create a properly fitting and functioning crown or bridge dental repair. When the wax for the crown or bridge was completed, a finished tooth was produced by using the lost wax method to cast it in gold or other biocompatible metals. It is then fitted to the plaster model, polished, and sent to the dentist who made the final adjustments in the patient's mouth. My job title was waxer. There were others in our dental lab who packed powdered porcelain into a cast metal frame that fit the tooth being prepared, and then the porcelain was fired in a kiln and ground into shape. The tricky part of porcelain work was getting the color of the tooth correct. The above description is a modern variation of a very ancient practice. The reason I've described these practices of this trade in detail is because they are now obsolete. The other day, my wife Becky went to the dentist because she had a broken tooth that needed a crown. When she was in the chair, a series of digital pictures were taken of the prepared tooth and fed into a CAD CNC computer program that operates an apparatus that carves the crown out of a color-coded porcelain blank. Two hours later, Becky had a perfectly fitted color-matched crown that functions and looks exactly like a natural tooth. While I would argue that this is indeed a great technological advancement for dentistry, Something is lost when human hands or eyes no longer make many of the products we encounter in our daily lives. I'm thinking of the Walking Liberty Silver Dollar from the late 19th century, carved in hand in negative reverse into a steel die. Her facial features and flowing gowns seem to be alive. Contrast that with our current coinage that's flat and lifeless and, in my opinion, unattractive to look at. In the way of things, the very lifelessness of these objects may be the key to true craftsmanship's survival. In other words, I believe that humans prefer things that are made by other humans. How something feels in our hands matters, and the appreciation for finely crafted goods that we can pass down to our children continues. As an old craftsman, my concern is the loss of general knowledge of how to produce refined products by hand. 
If that makes me a curmudgeon, so be it. But it would be a good thing if we retain the ability to function without being computer-dependent for everything. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. I'm Reuben Guthrie, and this is James Taylor, Something in the Way She Moves. Something in the way she moves Looks my way and calls my name It seems to leave this troubled world behind And if I'm feeling down and blue And troubled by some foolish game She always seems to make me change my mind I feel fine any time that she's around me now. She's around me now, almost all the time. And if I'm well, you can tell that she's been with me now. She's been with me now, quite a long, long time. Every now and then the things I lean on lose their meaning And I find myself careening into places that I should not let me go She has the power to go where no one else can find me Yes, and decidedly remind me of the happiness and good times that I know as if I just got to know it It isn't what she's got to say How she thinks and where she's been To me the words are nice The way they sound I like to hear them best that way It doesn't much matter what they mean says them just to calm me down And I feel fine any time that she's around me now She's around me now Almost all the time And if I'm well you can tell that she's been with me now She's been with me now Quite long Yes, and I feel fine Thanks for tuning in to episode 132 of the Brown County Hour. This show was recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. and anytime online. Be sure to look for us on your favorite streaming services. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe, now more than ever, the world is for everyone.
This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Sarah Lytle, and Dave Seastrup. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County. Oh